Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and it's my great pleasure today to have a truly distinguished professor of geography. I'm delighted to have today on our broadcast, Mark Monmonier, who is the distinguished professor of geography at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. Welcome, Mark, to our broadcast today. Oh, thank you, Stephen. Um, I appreciate being invited. Mark has a new book which just came out with Esri Press. It's called Connections and Content, Reflections on Networks and the History of Cartography, just released. Mark has authored um, now 20 books, including his classic in its third edition, How to Lie with Maps. It first came out Uh, with University of Chicago Press in 1991. His other books include, and I'll just list some of them, Air Apparent, How Meteorologists Learn to Map, Predict, and Dramatize Weather, Bushmanders and Bullwinkles, How Politicians Manipulate Electronic Maps and Census Data to Win Elections, I think especially relevant now, Spying with Maps, Surveillance Technologies and the Future of Privacy, Rumb Lines and Map Wars, A Social History of the Mercator Projection, From Squatit to Whorehouse Meadow, that has to be the greatest title ever, How Maps Name, Claim, and Inflame, Host Lines, How Mapmakers Frame the World and Chart Environmental Change, No Dig, No Fly, No Go, How Maps Restrict and Control, Lake Effect, Tales of Large Lakes, Arctic Winds, and Recurrent Snows, Adventures in Academic Cartography, a memoir, one, one of my favorites. And finally, um, Patents and Cartographic Inventions, a New Perspective for Map History. So today uh, we'll be talking with Mark, whose books have been translated into Chinese, Czech, French, German, Japanese, Korean, Russian, and I'm sure I'm leaving out a few more about his new book on networks. So uh, let me start with the first question for you. How did you come to be interested in networks in the history of cartography? I guess um, I could say that I've always had an interest in networks, although always you know, presupposes um, a memory about, you know, back to the age of two, which I would sort of disavow. Um, I've... Um, I've I collected maps of networks since I was in grade school. I was interested in streetcars. Um, uh, we uh, lived in the city in Baltimore. We didn't have a car yet. Um, if we wanted to go somewhere, aside from taking a taxi, we uh, typically took public transportation. And uh, so you had to note schedules and um, uh, connections. My dad worked for the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad downtown in an office, and um, he um, was involved, I guess, with auditing uh, passenger accounts or something like that. In any event, um, every so often when they discarded a copy down there of the official guide of the railways, which is um, a huge book about the thickness of a standard big city telephone book, which has train schedules in it, Uh, He'd bring that home, and I was fascinated by it. And I sort of had a railroad hobby, um, and um, I was also into model trains for a while, at least until 
one time in high school when I was uh, setting up a layout in our basement, and I got so enthralled with that that I um, I missed the honor roll, and that was a bit of a traumatic experience. And I figured, okay, well, at this point, you know, maybe not so much, um, you know, spending time with little pieces of track and buildings, but if I want to have an interest in uh, trains, uh, you know, basically look at what schedules and uh, and at maps. And uh, the high school that I was going to, uh, which was in downtown Baltimore, Calvert Hall College, um, uh, it was actually that short for Calvert Hall College Preparatory School, basically high school, private. Um, it was just across the street from the Enoch Pratt Free Library, the main library in Baltimore. And um, I had a kind of a nervous problem, I, I guess, in my uh, senior year, uh, anxiety. And uh, it had to do, no, excuse me, you know, senior year. It had to do with um, not quite getting calculus. And um, I got really frustrated and resolved the problem by basically dropping calculus. And I had enough credits that I didn't need it. And the irony of it is that, uh, uh, and, and this is another long story that's not particularly related to this conversation, but I actually wound up uh, getting a bachelor's in mathematics at Johns Hopkins, uh, where I did my undergraduate work. Any event, um, this left a bit of a hole in my schedule. That hole in my schedule uh, coincided with um, uh, actually the lunch period. And s since I was a senior, I could um, I could go off campus during this long period, and the library beckoned, and um, I discovered over there something called uh, the Maryland Room, where they had uh, collections of maps, and um, boy, you know, discovered topographic maps, and you got all kinds of intriguing detail there. So um, that, I guess, you know, is the origin of my interest in networks. Uh, when I was in grad school um, at Penn State, uh, I even had the idea uh, of doing a master's thesis on railway abandonment. And uh, that idea was scotched by an advisor who didn't really like the idea that much because he had some other things in mind for me. And um, any event, once I got, uh, got through the master's, got through the PhD, and um, then I picked up that topic again, and I actually wrote a little paper that was presented at the Pennsylvania Academy of Science uh, called uh, The Probability of Link Severance in a Transport Network. Um, we actually had a little graphic model showing different uh, phases in which a railroad network might go through where um, some links would disappear uh, because they were not as useful as other links. Um, I became interested in another aspect of networks um, because I was involved early on in digital cartography. And in fact, I guess um, uh, one of, maybe it was my earliest book, um, it was called A Computer Assisted Cartography. Um, and it was actually, I guess, the first general textbook on uh, computerized cartography. Uh, I can't really say GIS because there was no GIS at that point. But uh, right. at that time, uh, you know, I did have a chapter that was concerned uh, with a computer networks, uh, networks which um, were represented in the memory of a computer uh, to represent uh, connections between census blocks and addresses uh, and block faces and all kinds of neat stuff, which were used at the time by the U.S. Census Bureau to do two things. One, uh, basically take um, results from the mail-out, mail-back questionnaire, which was first used for the 1970 census, and um, assign results uh, to census blocks to expedite tabulation. And then also, um, uh, for the 1980 census, uh, where they uh, got a little bit more sophisticated with something called DIME, uh, an acronym for Dual Independent Map Encoding, 
And uh, what they did was to use network representations to make certain that their computerized representation of the network didn't have any glitches in it. So the network linkages actually were used um, in that way. And then uh, at some point, too, I began to um, experiment with computer programming for making maps and um, also dealt with networks in, in, in that context. So um, I guess networks and I go back a long ways. I'm really struck in the book um, by a few things that you just mentioned. So uh, in some ways, the prehistory of GIS and the meticulousness of um, triangulation and, and geodesic surveyors in, mm -hmm. in the 19th century, um, by comparison, of course, with, with the computational mapping and surveying and sur surveyors' work of the 20th century, um, of course, you're the editor of the, the grand volume six of the history of cartography for the 20th century, but could you talk a little bit about um, some of that kind of mathematical savvy that went into a, a lot of the survey work and, and calculations from the 19th century? Well, um, triangulation there was very much rooted in trigonometry. And uh, you basically, if you have a network and um, if you have various stations or you can set up something like a plane table or something maybe a little bit more sophisticated uh, like a theodolite where you can get some relatively accurate um, measurements of angles uh, between stations where the stations would be several miles apart. Uh, typically, um, you would set the theodolite up at one location. You would have an assistant who would be several miles away. Uh, he, well, it's almost always a male, so I guess there's no problem with using a masculine pronoun, uh, might have a light, and they might even do some of this work at night. And um, you would have maybe more than one assistant. So um, what you can do during the daytime, you can have a flag or something like a target. Or in any event, you're at station A, and you sight on station B, then you sight on station C, and you have this angle A, B, C in there. And you can get a very precise measurement of that angle. Then you can take the theodolite over to station B, and uh, you can sight back, and you can, um, uh, you can get you know, one other angle for that triangle. Then you can go to station C. You can do the same thing. You can have some other stations. You can bring them in. So you basically have a network of triangles. And um, this doesn't really give you map scale. So there would be a distance that you can measure precisely on the ground. This would be the so-called baseline. And if you have a sort of a high-order triangulation network, there might be um, fairly large distance between the stations on the order of you know, 10, 20, 30 miles. Uh, but the baseline would be nowhere near as long the, um, because um, trying to get a very precise measurement over a straight line was rather troublesome. Um, in the early days of triangulation in the United States, um, early in the 19th century, um, in the early days of the um, uh, U.S. Coast Survey, they happened to find a stretch of railroad in Massachusetts that was just being built. And uh, so it was going to be a double-track railway. They had the track, uh, they had the rails laid along one section, uh, but the adjacent section they haven't yet hadn't yet put the rails in. And uh, and it was in a straight line because this was relatively level land and they graded things very nicely. So this was the setup for the Massachusetts baseline. And um, the thing there, though, is that in order to measure this, and I have an illustration in the book where they basically had a bar. I mean, this was not a matter of what surveyors would do with a small, relatively um, localized network, let's say, you know, for a property survey where they might have a steel tape, but they actually had some carefully calibrated bars, multiple bars, and they set up trestles and they would level them off. And you basically would 
take these bars and you would have them sort of leapfrog along the line and set things up very, very carefully and get an estimate of distance that would be accurate to within a fraction of a centimeter. And um, by using trigonometry then, they could take this precisely measured length and integrate it with their network of angles and um, basically estimate lengths for all of the other sides of triangles in this network. And I have an illustration in the book uh, for the um, great eastern oblique arc of triangulation that ran from Maine down to Louisiana, a huge network, and they had seven different baselines for this, and things were sort of very carefully integrated in there, and it took a lot of calculation. Bearing in mind, people were doing this um, uh, using pretty much hand calculation. Slide rules uh, uh, were uh, not really appropriate in this context. They basically used um, uh, trigonometric tables, um, not trigonometric, uh, logarithmic tables, logarithms. And um, so um, they had a great arc of triangulation which ran um, uh, from Maine down to Louisiana. Uh, there were several other extensive triangulation networks, I think was it an arc, uh, I believe along the 39th parallel that stretched out to California. And um, this was used to basically frame a lot of, of local topographic mapping. You had the highly precise first-order triangulation. Then you had um, a second-order triangulations network, which were linked into the first-order uh, first triangulation network. Then you had third-order triangulation networks. So, I mean, it was sort of like you know going down a scale. When you went farther down the scale, you got into networks which were more localized. The precision wasn't as great, but um, the whole thing was tied to, together by these great arcs. And... Um, uh, in the second chapter in my book, which is titled Geometry, I look at uh, another kind of network which was used. And um, this was a, um, uh, and this was the a telegraphic network. And um, the telegraphic network was used to basically integrate uh, latitude and longitude into this system. Bearing in mind what we have is we have a mapping network which is on a curved surface. And um, uh, distances, you know, need to be related to something that better approximate this curved surface. And what they did was use, to use something called an ellipsoid. Um, uh, they used the term figure of the earth where the three-dimensional earth was represented not by a sphere because the earth is basically sort of like a sphere but it's flattened at the poles and because the sphere is, is spinning and uh, because um, central forces are sort of causing it to bulge at the e equator so it gets flattened a bit and uh, then there's some other sort of dimples here and there and but um, uh, by trying to fit their measurements to different hypothetical so-called e ellipsoids, they um, came up with one that seemed to work pretty well for North America. And uh, they also were using astronomical observations because basically uh, latitude is a relatively simple measurement um, having to do, um, let's say, with a position relative to uh, the polar star. Longitude becomes trickier. Longitude basically is a difference in time. The Earth is rotating through 360 degrees in a day. 360 degrees in one hour is, 50, I mean, 360 degrees in 24 hours is 15 degrees in one hour. And um, they recognize that uh, you can get some very precise 
astronomical instruments where you can detect the point at which the Earth, while it is rotating, when you have a star crossing the meridian through a place, and you're observing that star through a very precise telescope, and the heavens are sort of moving, and as the Earth is moving, the star is approaching a line on the telescope, and there's a point at which it crosses. You can have a telegraph key. You can you can basically click the key, and that would indicate that would send a signal at the time at which the a meridian crossing occurred. You could have this linked to a station somewhere else, where you have another uh, a, a geodesist, another uh, highly qualified mapping te technician, and uh, he would note the time at which this other person's crossing occurred. So you basically would have a time difference. And um, there were a variety of different uh, corrections that they did here, uh, uh, including a, a, a system whereby the two technicians would occupy each other's station and then they would make the same observations. They would take multiple observations, and they would try to see how consistent these results were. So they got lots of different measurements, and then they would boil these down to um, a, a difference in time, which would then become a difference in longitude. And um, right. then ultimately they were able, after we had a transatlantic cable, um, uh, uh, after the uh, middle, well, I guess what was about 1866 or so, um, uh, we had a transatlantic cable. They could link in the network of latitude and longitude in Europe with that in North America. And um, so networks really did play a significant role. Um, you know, if you fast forward to uh, what we have now, where um, you have a GPS, and that GPS comes up with an estimate of uh, latitude and longitude, which is pretty accurate. Um, it gets even more accurate if you take multiple measurements, because there is still a certain amount of imprecision there. That imprecision that you get in the GPS reading, um, you know, you might be off by about a meter or two. And uh, this is certainly less than the accuracy uh, that the geodesists had when they were doing their highly uh, precise first-order surveys back in the 19th century. But what you can do um, if you're driving around, let's say, in a car, and um, you uh, get this measurement, which might be a little bit off, well, you also have a stored network representing the um, transportation system, basically the highway system. So you could snap that estimate of latitude and longitude from the GPS onto the nearest roadway or the nearest sidewalk if you're walking. And you know, here we have a situation where these two networks are sort of helping each other out. Yeah, I, I'm very interested actually in especially in your first couple of chapters um, on baselines and geometry, when you begin comparing with some very beautiful mm -hmm. illustrations the different GPS networks, because obviously there is an American GPS network, but as you say, it has competitors. Mm -hmm. There's the Russian network, which was deployed, I think, back in 1996 and then enhanced. And there's the European Space, Space Agency's um, global satellite navigation system, uh, Galileo. So it, could you talk a little bit about some of the these sort of different, maybe even systems of networks. I know that sounds like a kind of wordy way of understanding mm -hmm. this, but there there is more than one measure, the American measure of of these um, differential systems. How does that work? Let's say from past into the present today. Oh boy, I haven't really looked into it that much, you know. So I have to claim ignorance here, other than the fact that uh, these networks do pretty much the same thing. And these networks were developed um, 
as a part of uh, national technical means um, by the United States. Um, uh, we devised the um, GPS network originally as a means of routing cruise missiles. And um, yes, uh, so um, and this is the reason why other countries, you know, um, I mean, especially the uh, the Soviet Union, um, uh, would be um, obviously using it for their own cruise missile system. Um, it became apparent uh, that there are other applications for GPS. Um, and, uh, in fact, there was a time at which the American um, GPS network was deliberately blurred. Uh, so that, I mean, if, if you had a GPS a receiver, you would be off, you know, not by a meter or so for an instantaneous reading, but it would be off quite a bit. And you could get a better reading if you wanted to by simply occupying that station you know, for a period of time, and you could get a lot of different measurements because basically the point that um, you were trying to measure, it's latitude and longitude, if you were to map it, it would be jumping around all over the place. But uh, you you could take this um, accumulated set of latitudes and longitudes and you could average them out and you could come out to something which would be pre pretty accurate. Um, that, of course, was not a good system, you know, if you were trying to basically uh, use it for purposes of missile guidance. In any case, you know, where is this going? It's going in the uh, direction that uh, the consumer electronics industry in the United States realized that, hey, you know, there's something here that if we had it, we could sell people GPS receivers that they could have in their cars and um, they could link this up with a network uh, map of the highway system and uh, they could, uh, you know, plug this into, by the way, a shortest path algorithm uh, so that they could get the shortest distance between an origin and destination and they could track a vehicle's movement along this uh, digital road network. And there are all kinds of other commercial applications for it so that basically through the process of lobbying and also, I guess, the realization that, you know, hey, well, our principal adversary, the Soviets, they also had G GPS so that, you know, if we let the consumer electronics people have access to this, you know, we really, you know, we're not preventing the Russians from being able to guide their own cruise missiles. So um, basically, um, the system designed, uh, devised originally for military guidance applications um, opened up a whole new world of, um, of um, applications. And um, so the Chinese got into this. And uh, certainly the European Space Agency. Um, and um, I think the Indians might even have something. I know that they, that, that they basically put up satellites. And uh, their space program is, is coming along. Um, and uh, in almost, I mean, in some, some ways became somewhat of a means of, of national pride. You know, and uh, I guess the rationalization is, you know, why let the why should the Americans be the only ones to have this te technology? Um, and um, uh, it became something where um, I think they're uh, boy. Well, I think that and, I think this is this is yeah. sort of like the history of cartography, Volume Seven. So, yeah. um, I it it in many ways remains to be written. Um, mm, it's a, evolving, a of, and it's it faster than I can keep up with. Mm -hmm. So that's a it, it's really interesting to sort of begin to imagine that history of the future. Um, I I want to shift actually back to the history of of the nineteenth and twentieth century. So. Um, yeah, I, th I think the answer rem it remains to be seen about GPS and satellite navigation. But um, in your book, it's exceptionally rich to me 
the way that you describe um, roads and power lines and, and sort of like early planning and infrastructure like the Erie Canal, the history of the Erie Canal, which became the New York Barge Canal. Mm-hmm. Could, could you talk some more about um, this network, like sort of pre-20th century history? It's, it's remarkable how you managed to cover a lot of textbooks and, and sort of engineers and experts who were involved in, in, in the process. The Erie Canal is an interesting case. The typographic maps that um, they had around in the early 19th century were um, very um, general, not overly accurate. Obviously, uh, there was no first-order triangulation network that could tie things down. Um, uh, measurements were, were crude. They were generally, you know, I guess useful from the standpoint of representing, you know, where there were rivers. Um, um, uh, most of the boundaries that were uh, plotted on those maps, well, if you basically tie a, a boundary to a river, and assuming there's no confusion about where the river is, um, you might not be that precise in your representation of the river's geometry, but that probably doesn't make a great deal of difference. Um, there was not much of a road network um, around then at that point, which was another rationale for having the uh, canal. Um, there really uh, was not a systematic way of training the engineers who were needed to plan and build the uh, canal. In fact, it, it's been said um, that uh, the Erie Canal served as uh, North America's first school of engineering. They uh, pretty much learned things as they went. I mean, there were surveying instruments, you know, which had been used there. But, uh, you know, how one integrates all of this and systematically surveys the land um, and figures out, you know, where you're going to get the canal to uh, go. Um, uh, In the absence of detailed topographic maps, um, surveyors would go, would go out and they would look at things. And one of the big um, problems uh, was for the surveyor James Geddes, um, who was concerned with plotting a route for the canal uh, between, say, roughly around Syracuse to areas um, south of Rochester. Is you know where do you put it? And um, you want to go from the Genesee River, okay, and there was sort of a broad plain that was to the east of the Genesee River, and you want to get a route where you don't want to have too much in the way of ups and downs. Basically, a canal could go across land um, that was not completely flat because you'd have to build locks. And um, uh, so you would have the uh, canal's route, and you could have a boat that could go into a lock, and the lot c- could raise a boat or, or lower it. But if you had a lot of locks, um, you know, this added considerably to the cost of construction. It added certainly to the uh, cost of transportation along the canal itself. <laughs> Uh, Geddes traveled around and he looked at the land and he realized that um, a big problem was crossing the valley of the uh, Gurundicut Creek. And um, he noticed, however, that there was a kind of a feature. There were features that uh, geomorphologists, um, geographers and geologists who study landforms, recognized as eskers. And an esker is a stream, um, well, a deposit left behind by a stream that flowed underneath a glacier. And uh, these streams, um, when the glacier melted away, left behind a deposit. And the uh, deposits stood up a little higher than the surrounding land. And these eskers were uh, continuous. And um, um, Geddes recognized that, okay, there is a place where if we put a large embankment in, we can connect 
a section of Esker on this side with a section of Esker on the other side. I'm talking about an embankment, a hill rising up, I think, roughly about 50 feet or so. But constructing something like that over a considerable distance was not an easy task. And the idea is that you could basically get a relatively more or less level route eastward um, um, uh, from the Genesee River. Uh, yeah, there would have to be some locks in there, you know, but it wouldn't be as bad as right. something where you would have lots of ups and downs. And um, um, the uh, canal itself, um, in the early 20th century, century um, they realized that the canal had some problems. I mean, it had been rebuilt in sections um, uh, a few times since it was originally opened, uh, I think around what's, maybe 1825 or so. Um, and uh, But they decided to give it an, an overhaul and convert it from the old Erie Canal to the great New York State Barge a Canal. And the canal here would be longer, um, uh, well, excuse me, it would be wider. It would be able to accommodate canal boats that would be longer. Um, they would have locks that would be longer, so you could put these longer boats in them. There would be fewer locks. And um, uh, so, they gave this, so they gave the canal a major overhaul to try to make it more competitive with, with railways, um, which I guess, you know, in the long run, yeah. proved to be fairly short-sighted. The right. canal itself, it's there and it's operating. And mostly these days, they use it for sometimes shipping some relatively long sections of rotors of windmills, which you can't very well carry on a highway along a railway. But it's been principally used for, uh, tour for uh, tourism on pleasure craft. Um, any event, um, um, railways. Railways, when they were building them, they didn't have the uh, maps of the geological survey. The geological survey didn't get into the mapping business until the early 1890s. The survey itself was founded in 1879. And um, uh, so... Um, how do you route a railway? One of the things, though, is that they could make surveys of stream networks. And by looking at the pattern of streams, they could sort of figure, you know, where you would might where you might have ridges, where you might have ridges that you would have to tunnel through. Uh, the railway lines could sort of follow streams. You don't want to do this too much because the problem is that... Um, you have the railway tracks following a stream. You have to build bridges. You have to deal with the occasional flooding. But generally speaking, uh, these rivers, streams, followed routes that were far more amenable to railway transportation, you know, than uh, you know trying to trying to run a straight line across the land. At least in the eastern part of the country, when you get to the Great Plains, it becomes uh, quite a bit easier. Right. Right. Yeah. And and I was really fascinated because I think um, in some ways when you're describing the history of the canal and railways, the watchwords are for a very long period of time, maybe a century and a half, uh, modernization and, and restructuring and progress and, and development. But, you know, so much has been written really starting with Edney's, Matthew Edney's essay back, I think, 1993 on writing the history of cartography, not, not just from the angle of progress. So I want to lead maybe not so seamlessly in, into the latter chapters of your book where, you know, at one point you say behind every great map is a network and behind every great network is a map. From there, we wind up into the theme or the story of, of control. So mm -hmm. not just surveillance, but, but actual control. Um, could you talk, talk about that? It, it seems to be the future of a lot of things that you bring up in, in this book and in your other books about um, the military and surveillance, um, gerrymandering. You have a fascinating part about that with the 2016 election. So the issue of control 
and leading into a world where where progress is no longer the way to, to write about the history of, of maps and cartography. Okay, okay. Let me start by looking at driverless cars, um, or as um, I guess some people like to call them, autonomous vehicular systems. Um, there are things out there right now. I mean, there there apparently you know are are Teslas on the road. Which um, uh, allegedly, you know, somebody is at the control of these, but people have photographed, uh, you know, car going by um, 65, 70 miles an hour, and the person at the wheel seems to be asleep, and they haven't hit things. And the technology is there. I mean, um, you can. Um, put sensors in a car so that it doesn't get too close to the vehicle in front of it. Um, you can keep track of the lines along the roadway so that it can uh, be prevented from drifting out of its lane. Um, you can um, presumably set things up so that you can basically start it out and you can program it and you can presumably, in theory at least, Take it to its destination, and ultimately, I think this is this kind of thing is going to is going to come to pass. Um, you could probably say that as long as the vehicles on the road are following the same algorithm, and you don't have you know some of them you know which have let's say um, programming that would make them um, excessively more aggressive than some other vehicles, uh, things would work very. Precisely, um, we do have you know a system that is networked, networked because we have the existing infrastructure, the highway network, networked because we have the um, the satellite navigation network, which is keeping track of the instantaneous location of the vehicle, which can also, by the way, provide you a much better indication of its speed. Uh, than an odometer, which is simply, you know, tied to um, an axle. Um, um, you have um, a network that can basically uh, describe the highway system that could describe, let's say, where the vehicle is going to turn. There, there are all, all kinds of ways in which con control can be programmed into this. And this could be very useful, too, from the standpoint you can avoid um, a problem we've had periodically in Syracuse. Um, we have a road which goes along the northeast side of Onondaga Lake, Onondaga Lake Parkway. And uh, there's a rail railway bridge. And the bridge um, uh, has, I forget exactly what the elevation is, but it does have an elevation which is uh, sufficiently low so that occasionally it crops off the top of a tractor trailer because the driver is not very attentive. And uh, there was a problem um, a number of years ago where, um, uh, do you know these double-decker buses where they uh, operate express bus service, one going, I think, between New York City and uh, Toronto. And, yeah. And they're supposed to go over a prescribed route. Well, the driver got lost <laughs> and he had his own GPS along. And his GPS was, I guess, the kind you know, which works perfectly well in a car. And it gave him a route and it sent him along um, on the Dogger Lake Parkway. And this happened late at night. And I guess he wasn't terribly attentive to the um, signs. And they have loads of signs approaching this. And basically, he rammed the bus uh, into the railway bridge. And that's a very durable bridge. It's endured, I'd say, probably it must be by this point upwards of maybe 30 or 40 different crashes over the years. There seem to be a few of them every year. And unfortunately, it took out the upper part of the bus and several people died. Mm. And um, so, you know, if the bus operator had a GPS system, and I guess you can't anticipate things, you probably can now, that would actually keep track of the momentary p 
position of the bus along its route and detect any departure of the bus from the prescribed route. And conceivably, if there's a problem and if human lives are at stake, shut down the bus, you know, which is better than, you know. Now, um, this applies to buses. It also applies to trains. The railway system in the country is going through... um, some fits and starts in implementing something called positive train control. And positive train control uses GPS. It uses the network of the rail lines themselves where you have the tracks. It uses uh, a telecommunication networks that also um, transmit information between control stations, uh, which are trackside, and the operator's cab, and it can do a number of things, including if a train is approaching another train and if they're on the train, same track, it can avoid a serious rear end a collision, and this is a good thing. It can uh, also identify um, situations where there is a misaligned switch, and this can be a good thing. It can also identify a situation that's happened a few years ago near Philadelphia where an engineer became distracted, and its uh, I don't fully understand what went on, but he basically was not aware fully of where he was. And he was on a curve, and this is a curve where he should have slowed down, and he um, basically accelerated the train to something like 60 or 70 miles an hour. He went into the curve, and basically the train flew off the track. Right. I, I, have to, I have to say, um, Mark, because you, you had this wonderful passage in the book where you, you ask if a car's computer, like, like the black box on airplanes after they crash, if the, if the computer should be allowed to testify against the driver. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's a brilliant idea. If, if you're doing a kind of forensic test, mm-hmm. um, it, it's, it's a question of liability and, and other things and also intersects with privacy issues for the 21st century. So um, that, that that's a great way of, of looking at this, you know, future of drone and, and surveillance technology that I think we will all have increasingly um, as militaries grow and, and police departments continue to use them. Um, so I, I want to really turn to our, my last um, sort of big question here. And um, given all of this uh, history of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, I have to ask a political question. And the political uh, questions that that you raised toward the end of the book about um, gerrymandering and other issues, uh, do do you see in the near future, since you have been talking a lot about the development of these technologies, the the ability of citizen mappers or cartographers or ordinary practitioners of GIS, do you see them as as capable of reining in the politics, this kind of partisan gerrymandering that you described that's really kind of gotten out of control? Well, I mean, at one level, um, as long as we have the Electoral College in the United States, we have a structural gerrymander which uh, can produce a result such as we had in 2016, where Hillary Clinton, I think, had a most upwards of 300, no, upwards of 3 million more votes than Trump, and Trump won. And he won in the Electoral College because basically uh, he had um, uh, supporters who managed to carry the edge um, in uh, states like uh, Wisconsin. Uh, I have a friend uh, in Wisconsin, and I am furious with her for throwing away her vote by voting for Jill Stein. (laughs) Um, And uh, you can get a slight margin here and there, and you can rack up more electoral votes that can negate a significant win in the count of popular votes. So that's one thing. Another thing is um, 
what happens um, when uh, we come to legislation? And, um, uh, well, as far as the Senate is concerned, the structural gerrymander that basically put Trump in the White House um, is uh, still likely to give Republicans a slight edge in the Senate. Whether the Democrats can take things back or not, it's hard to say. Um, you know, one would think that under the natural tenor of things, people who, you know, might be leaning toward the right of center would be so disgusted with what's coming out of the White House now that they would simply not want that to uh, continue. Um, or, you know, conceivably the Republican Party might go for somebody halfway decent like Nikki Haley. Um, any event. Um, yeah. Uh, 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 but if, if we look at Congress and we have uh, two houses, we have the Senate, we have the House of Representatives. And uh, the House of Representatives uh, is very susceptible to gerrymandering insofar as you can take a state and you can draw the lines within the state and you can take the other party's voters and you could marginalize them by drawing lines that basically put, let's say, more Democrats in relative few, few districts, or if you're in the state of Maryland and the Democrats, you know, if they're controlling things, they can do the same darn thing that the Republicans do. Uh, they can put um, most of the Republicans where the Republican strength, let's say, in one district and let the Democrats take the other districts. Um, what can be done about this? Well, um, I see two things that can be done. You know, one is that you can go with the um, system that we have pretty much now, but you, we can get more voices at the table. And uh, you can use crowdsourcing and you can let average everyday citizens and um, people basically come up with their own redistricting plans and they can present these plans and uh, they can let a legislature look at different possibilities and maybe not just a legislature but a so-called bipartisan or, not, or let's say nonpartisan redistricting commission look at various possibilities. But through crowdsourcing, I mean, uh, you can take a state and there can be umpteen different ways in which you can redistrict that state. And all of them can satisfy um, the one person, one vote rule. Right. But uh, some of them right. can give a significant advantage to one party or the other. Now, you can also say, why do we simply have to have this practice of single-member districts? Why can't we recognize that um, you can take several of our existing congressional districts and make them into a multi-member district, uh, combine them, so that, the, so that the district will send two or three or four people to the U.S. House? Now, how do you do this? Well, you don't want to do it so that voting within that district basically uh, gives people, um, gives the candidate the possibility of the so-called first-past-the-post victory. What you do is you allow something like um, proportional uh, rank-choice voting. And everybody in the district, you know, would receive a slate of candidates and you could rank them. Most preferred to least pre-preferred. And the idea behind this is that you basically want to elect, oh, you want to let more people within the district um, at least influence one of the seats assigned to this district. Now, another advantage of that, well, let's see, I'm sort of getting ahead of me. Um, um, this is possible. You might say, well, doesn't it make for a very complicated ballot? Sure. But uh, we do have electronic uh, computers now. Um, 
people could basically mark a ballot. There could be you know ways in which you could basically um, reduce the mum- number of people who might qualify you know for this ballot. But uh, you know, I, I don't think that that kind of complication. It, it's certainly not something which would be impossible from the standpoint of uh, de- determining um, you know how you're going to count votes using something called the uh, single transferable vote. I don't want to get into the, um, the no, complications no, that, that, of that. That's how, how, an excellent, an excellent um, answer, really. And I, 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 ha- I have to sort of cut you off on that one. Oh, but, that's a shame. Because um, <laughs> one thing, let me... Um, 30 seconds. Uh, 30 please. seconds. You don't have to redistrict every year. You can basically recognize that there are certain districts within a state that are going to be pretty stable because we have a network of urban centers. And uh, so we have in New York State, say maybe something centered in the western part of the state, something centered on Rochester, something in the central part. There's a big uh, district center down toward New York City. We can have stable boundaries. Populations within these boundaries can change, but you can then adjust the votes that the various members from these districts might have because you can give them a vote which is sort of like shares of stock. That would be represented yes. by people in a corporate boardroom. Okay, I quit now on that. Sorry, <laughs> I did want to get that in. I, I I know you have I know you have another book in you about this topic. I I can absolutely feel it. Um, but I've got to ask, and this is really the last question now. What you're working on now after after your latest book? So uh, if you would please. Okay. Right now I'm working on a biography of a chap by the name of John Byron Plato. And uh, as you can imagine, by the way, if you try and do a Google search for him, uh, you're going to really wind up with a lot of stuff that's not particularly relevant. Plato uh, uh, came to light in my book on patents and cartographic inventions because he devised a system for assigning addresses in rural areas that would give farmers a real address, to use his term, just like city folk, and um, a real address that could be posted on their mailbox, a real address unlike RFD numbers, which don't really have any meaning um, other than uh, to a a letter carrier, a real address where you indicate roughly how far they are uh, in miles from an address hub such as a community center, such as a rural business center. And he advised something called the clock system, which looks at the 12 um, hands, uh, 12 hour hands of the clock. And there's um, a sector which would be 12 o'clock, then 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and so forth. So that basically you have these 12 sectors. Um, laid out around these various center points and you say that a farmer is let's say at three o'clock in ring three from huntington village okay um plato patented his system hence he got into the uh, book on cartographic patents he um uh, decided he would try to sell the system to the post office well that didn't work Uh, The bureaucrats didn't want to try something new, and um, he decided he basically would go into business, and he um, came to Ithaca, New York, and he set up a company which for about a decade and a half made clock system maps. And um, he came here, came to Ithaca in 1918, and he left around 1931 when uh, the Great Depression came on and sort of undermined his business. Um, this is the first bibliography that I've done, not bibliography, excuse me, biography. Sorry, confuse these terms. Biography is very different from the other works I've done. Right. A, a biography is a life of an individual, and there are lots of, of, of facts involved. And it's a matter of trying to connect the dots, but to connect the dots, you first have to find those dots. And Plato left a very spotty biographical footprint. Uh, fortunately, he talked to journalists, so you can find various newspaper articles that mentions him, and he's talking about what he's planning on doing. You can find his pattern of copyrights. 
you can find the problem, however, because um, when you register a copyright, you deposit two copies with the copyright office. You make the assumption that those copyright uh, deposit copies, at least one of them, is going to find its way into the Library of Congress. Not necessarily so. Um, there's some, you know, I would say that a substantial part of the cartographic heritage, the low-end cartographic heritage of this country, went into waste bins or landfills or incinerators. I'm going to write an article at some point that I call it the cartographic holocaust. Wow. Um, yeah, wow. That's uh, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I want to thank you. Um, we've been talking with Mark Monmonier, professor at Syracuse University and the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. This is your host, Stephen Siegel, on New Books and Geography, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Mark's new book is called Connections and Content. Reflections on Networks and the History of Cartography. It is published this September by Esri Press. Thanks, Mark, for joining us on the podcast today. And thanks for having me on the program, Stephen. Stephen.